You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning, good morning. Happy Independence Day. There is an outside chance we'll finish 1 Corinthians 4 today. Yeah, pretty exciting. What's that? Outside chance. Chickens. I don't get it. Oh, I thought you were talking about free-range chickens or something. You know, outside chickens. Okay. It was a tenuous connection at best. Let's open in prayer. We'll hope that, that the uh, Scripture is always more in, in uh, instructive. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You that every truth You promulgated when it was written is true today. There's nothing about You that has changed. You are the same yesterday, the same today, the same tomorrow. And to, in, in that, we can put great confidence. And so this morning, as we look into Your Word, we pray, Lord, that that permanence, that that, that uh, fixed perfection will give us courage that we will open our, our minds and our hearts to the Spirit of God that we might hear Your Word and apply it to our lives today. And we'll thank You for what You're going to do with that in Jesus' name. So, of course, what I'd like to do first is read First Corinthians chapter 4. And we may eventually read 5 today. You know, if I had been the guys in the ninth century who broke this thing up, every chapter would have the same number of verses. Because arbitrary. But God is not arbitrary. Now, I'm not saying that the breaking up of the scripture was, was supernaturally supervised. It probably, it was not. But, but in most cases, it does make good sense. But not always. We'll see what happens today. First Corinthians chapter four. Let's try that again and I won't move. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. <laughs> Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have become already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. 
and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul is going to be digging into three of the major sins of the Corinthian church in the next chapter and, and beyond. And he is, he's laid a groundwork of exposing their arrogance, their pride, their ego, and their unwillingness to acknowledge Scripture as the sole authority for life. And so, whenever any of us do that, it's inevitable that we become arrogant. We become better than the Word. We become holier than thou. We become the standard to which men must look. And uh, frankly, we can't even live up to our own standards, but that's that's a story for another time. So Paul says in verse 17 that he's sending them Timothy. And Timothy, as the Corinthians would have known, was just like Paul. He was saved. Now, that doesn't mean he was exactly like Paul, but it meant that he would operate in the same way. He would operate from the basis of Scripture as to how to deal with the situation. And Paul reminds them that he doesn't teach a different gospel in Galatia. He doesn't teach something different in Ephesus. He didn't teach anything different in Antioch. He taught... It says, just as I teach everywhere in every church in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he comes on with this. He says, now, based on all of this, he could, you could say, he says, now, some of you, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. How many of you have put your kids to bed one night and you went to get to, you went to go to sleep and you heard something down the hall? Bang. Scratch, scratch. Clunk. Worse than this microphone even. And so you get up and you go down the hall and there they are bouncing on the bed. They've become arrogant as though you were not coming to them. As though you weren't around. We're going to do whatever we want. I won't go into it deeply because it would embarrass my children, but we had we actually had a process. <laughs> I became pretty stealthy. I could have worked for the FBI. Actually, I did. Family Bureau of Investigation. I would walk down there night after night. I go, really? They know I'm going to murder them. Why are they doing this? And that's and interestingly enough, Paul goes through all of this. Don't move your head. Paul goes through all of this, and at the end of this chapter, he says, "The ball's in your court. Do you want me to come to you with a rod or with love and, and gentleness?" And it's the same thing. It's the same concept. He said, "Now some have become arrogant." And the word arrogant is an interesting word. It means to be puffed up, to be blown up with pride and ego. And it's one of those cool Greek words that the sound of the word when you say it simulates 
what it means. Fusio. It's like murmur. It's the Greek word for mumbling under your breath and, and griping. It's murmur, murmur, murmur. That's what you hear. And this one is, he says, you become, you, you become swelled up. You become puffed up. Fusio. When you blow something up, I blew up four of those two wonderful little, what are they called? The little circular things that look like a tire inner tube. Whatever those are called for the kids yesterday. And you know the new ones? The new ones have this thing that you have to squeeze first. And if you don't forget to squeeze it, you pop your eyeballs out when you try to blow the thing up. Yeah. I forgot once. But he says that you become arrogant. You become blown up. You become foolish as though I were not coming to you. Um, you can see the definition of the word up there. Paul chose, as I said, a word here that imitates the life, imitates what was happening. The sound of the word speaks to the, it would have spoken to the Corinthians. Imagine as the man, whoever was reading this letter in church would have read that word. It would have had both, it would have had both uh, English, not English, Greek grammar effect and it would have had a sound effect on them. You guys have become blowhards. And it's not a good thing. And it's still, he's, he's off. In some ways, he's still in preparation for what he's going to be bringing to us in chapter, to them in chapter 5. But in other ways, he's just continuing to pile on. Not, not bringing shame. He says he didn't, want to, he didn't want to shame them. But he wanted to admonish them. This is an admonishment. You've become arrogant. Is that easy to tell someone? Well, you're arrogant. I'm not. There's a way to do it, of course. There's a prayerful, humble way to do it. And Paul did it here. But he then says in verse 19, any comments before I leave this verse that maybe some of you in your studies have come up with? You've become arrogant, he says, as though I were not coming to you. <laughs> He's not coming. We can do whatever we want. But I will come to you shortly, verse 19, if the Lord will. And I will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, the sound, the blowing, the arrogance, but the power. <clears throat> You've heard the saying, your talk so loud I can't... How's that go? You have, to, you have to walk the talk. But your talk is so loud I can't hear the walk. That's what's going on here. Paul would call their bluff. He would come if the Lord allowed. Several times Paul had made... Um, plans only to have God change them. He was, he and we as well should always be open to a change of plans as directed by God. Indeed, he intended to come to the Corinthians once and was unable to do so for some reason. He mentions it in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 15 and 16. He says, in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. When he comes, he said he would be looking at the power that the Corinthians had in the gospel, not just their words. It's easy to say things. It's another to back them up with action. <laughs> and that's what happens when politicians make promises. It's, doesn't it remind you of the sound of the blowing, the arrogance, the fusio? It's a blowing in the wind. He's going to find out if their words could be backed up with action. They should have been saying the, the right things and backing those things up with action. But in fact, they were saying arrogant, unkind, and unbiblical things. He would show them that those had no backing. 
in the gospel. The doctrine of the gospel would prove it. He was coming with teaching. He was coming with reproof. He was coming with correction and training in righteousness that they should actually be living. The righteousness that they should actually be living. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture. The scripture that Paul taught them when he was there years before. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every good parent is willing to reprove their children when needed. This follows the example of the father. Proverbs chapter 3.12. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. And Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. I forgot to look this one up. But there's one that says don't be dismayed when this happens. Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love says the Lord, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's what Paul is trying to bring these, these arrogant, loudmouthed Corinthians to. He's trying to bring them to repentance. That's where the shame, the non-shaming the non, uh, is coming in. That's where the warning is coming in. He's not trying to shame them. He's trying to turn them to repentance. Repentance is, is valuable, of course, for salvation. But for believers, it's also valuable to get us back on the road. First John, uh, John one nine, which we'll look at. I think I have it in here a little bit later. Um, any comments on verse nineteen? Verse twenty. For the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Again, as we had mentioned earlier, as I've mentioned and you've heard before, good theology can result in right behavior, whereas bad theology results in bad behavior. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that their words would be betrayed by their lies or be supported by their lies. It's relatively common, relatively, it's very common to see people saying one thing and doing another, isn't it? Do you like that? Is that enjoyable? Is that encouraging? It is a huge frustration. And it's, uh, it's a mar- remarkable thing when it happens in the church. Um, that's where it should be the least likely to happen. It seems. That's why Paul is saying that the kingdom of God Consists in not in words, but in power. A life of faith lived in adherence to the word of God is a life of power. But it's the kind of power that begets godliness and humility rather than up on a pedestal. And I'm the most important. It begets godliness and humility and it results in praise to the father. It takes the, the it takes the focus off of the person living the life and points it towards the father and the son and the Holy Spirit where the praise belongs. If the Corinthians words were truly words with power behind those words, those words should motivate them to change and to love God. Matthew Henry said it this way. Now, you have people teaching you every week. And here's you can't. It's like. You've heard people say, if you've got the right enemies, that's a good litmus test. Well, it can be, but that's not really what you should use. If. The word of God is true, and it is. And if the word of God has power in your life, and it does, won't it motivate you to live right? And if the teachers you have are teaching the right words, Matthew Henry said it this way. He said it kind of complicated, but at least it was for me. It is not set up nor propagated nor established in the hearts of men by plausible reasonings. That is right living by plausible reasonings, nor florid discourses. 
but by the external power of the Holy Spirit in miraculous operations at first and the powerful influence of divine truth on the minds and manners of men. Note, he says, it is a good way in the general to judge of a preacher's doctrine to see whether the effects of it upon men's hearts to be truly divine. That is most likely to come from God, which in its own nature is most fit and in event is found to produce more likeness, most likeness to God, to spread piety and virtue, to change men's hearts and to mend their manners. Proper teaching, proper biblical exegesis will result in good theology, which will result in good behavior. That's what Paul is saying. It will cause men to change their hearts. It will, it will, it will allow the Holy Spirit, allow, the Holy Spirit will change their hearts and he will mend their manners. And I think that means all manners. <laughs> I'm still learning about manners. What's that famous person? Dorothy Manners. Is it Dorothy Manners? Does she even have the last name? Is she, is she a figurehead or something? Is she real? You guys don't know any more about it than I do either. You don't have any manners either, do you? Yeah, you guys do. You do. Any comments on verse 20? We're about to end the chapter here. Verse 21. What do you desire? So he start, I started this section out. I, you can't say that this is where it began. But he said, now you become arrogant. He said, well, I'm not coming to you. But I'm going to come. If the Lord will. And I will know the walking and the talking. The walking and the talking of your lives. Because the kingdom of God doesn't consist in words, but in power. And then he says, so what do you desire? What's it going to be, Corinthians? And the man would have been reading this to him in front of the church. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. It, as an aside, it kind of reminds me of parents when they say to their kids, You want a spanking? Did any of your kids go, You know, Dad, I've been pretty disobedient today. I, actually, I think I need one. Would you, be the, would you do the honors? I'll, I'll go get the stick. Has that ever happened? I'm, I'm thinking the Corinthians would have been sitting there thinking, What do we want? We wanted to come with a rod or with a spirit of love and gentleness. Paul told them earlier that he did not want to shame them, but to admonish them. And now he puts the ball in their court. What will you have? What would you like? He says, I can come to you in one of two ways. With a lot of discipline or with a sweet spirit because you have returned to the gospel. It's clear from his tone, which changes throughout the first four chapters, from piercing to gentle, that Paul is dealing with a wayward church. And in some ways, he's coming to grips in his own mind with, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, as to how to deal with a body that was so far off the mark, so far off the, the teaching that he had given them just a few years before. He ends this chapter almost with a plaintive cry, seems to me. Do you want a spanking or do you want a hug? It's basically what he's saying. I don't believe he wants to give them the spanking. Not, none of us do. If you, a genuinely loving, beneficent, kind parent doesn't want to have to spank their kids. They want to build into them the discipline and the character that they begin living it out as they, as they come to their own faith in God. They begin living it out through the prompting of the Holy Spirit in their own lives. Isn't that a delight? I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth, in truth John said. Isn't that true? Those of you that have friends, those of you that have children, don't you enjoy seeing them living it out? Paul wants them to live it out. He wants to come to them with a spirit of love. He doesn't want to come to them with a rod, but he will do it if he has to. And I often wonder if 
in this instance right here where he said this, it might sometimes, at least in some of the Corinthians' hearts, prompted them to go to another extreme. But we'll talk about that later. Interestingly enough, when they finally do, they apparently finally do do something about what's coming in chapter 5. But in some ways, it seems like they overdid it. So, now, no less than the great biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce suggested that Paul may have actually intended to end the epistle right here. From his study of it and the way the, the word, the context, and how he addressed the things that were going on in the Corinthian church and then looking at the later parts of the letter, how it readdresses them. What would you, um, he, he suggested it may have, have uh, ended right here. And, the, and these four chapters could easily stand alone, could stand as, a, as an epistle. And Paul wrote short epistles on occasions. Philemon comes to mind, one chapter. Um, and others. Yeah. So what do you want? Do you want me to come with a rod or do you want me to come with a blessing? Then he carries on. Yeah. And, and so there are those who thought that it should have, he might have wanted to end it here. And maybe he did. Who knows what the, when the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I, I'm so it's going to be so thrilling to get a chance to talk. It'll probably I'll have to wait for 10,000 years, but to get a chance to talk with the apostles and say, so tell me about chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Oh yeah, I was going to stop, but I got this prompting. But actually, it would have been a direct influence of the Holy Spirit because He was inspired. We are illumined. He is inspired. At any rate, I don't know. But neither, nevertheless, um, there's no way to prove or disprove this thesis because the letter does in fact continue. So Paul has defended and explained his ministry in the first um, in in this chapter he's defended and explained his ministry reminding the corinthians that his ministry was given to him by christ himself which paul does often and that paul himself is a steward of the mysteries of god the wonderful mysteries of god he then describes what a minister looks like remember he had to be found faithful trustworthy and he explains that his earlier metaphors were to be found as figures in his and apollos's lives Sometimes I think that was so he, he didn't pick on people in the, in the audience. He picked on himself and he picked on, it picked on as maybe a poor choice of words, but used himself and he used his, the other um, people who were teaching in the church as the examples. He, when, he, when he used this, the, uh, the metaphors, the you know, construction and other things. He then walks through a sarcastic litany of the Corinthians' bad theology, which has resulted in them becoming puffed up, fusio, puffed up and prideful. So that they were looking at Paul and the other apostles as fools. I wonder if they included Peter in that. Because some of them were following Peter, it said in, in the earlier part of this book. As fools, weak and despised. He reminds the Corinthians that he and the other apostles fought tremendous odds in bringing the gospel to them and to others. He, demonstrates, he does demonstrate more concern for them and explain that he did not intend to shame them. But he wants to warn them. Remember, he says, I'm your spiritual father. In the way that that is improperly intended. And I love you. He talks about them in loving terms in many cases throughout this, this epistle. Timothy, Timothy will be coming, he says. And Timothy will set things to rights. But he says, if you don't shape up, I will come with a club. I can come with a club. If you do, I will come with a blessing. It's interesting that he ends the chapter this way, though, in another aspect. Because now he's going to go into dealing with the three major sins of the Corinthians, incest, litigation, and prostitution. So before we go there, 
I'd like us to read chapter 5. He's, he's going to take on three major things in this. And by the way, we're going to have a clear example of how in the New Testament, sins that were dealt with one way in the Old Testament are dealt with in a different way in the New Testament. Only because God brought the new word. Doesn't mean that the sin is any less horrifying. Doesn't mean that the sin is has changed itself. But we'll see the difference between his, his chosen ones in the Old Testament, the Jews, and how he deals with the church. And it's an interesting one. So let's read chapter 5. Chapter 5, 1 Corinthians. It is actually... Now, this is how the guy should have read it up front. It is actually reported that there's immorality among you. And immorality of such kindness does not even exist among the Gentiles. He says... That someone has his father's wife. And here's the word again. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. In order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has still committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such an one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is a full chapter. Mark this. Paul's last phrase in the preceding chapter alludes to kindness, gentleness, even a loving father. Harking back to verse 15. With love and a gentle spirit, he says. With a spirit of gentleness. <laughs> he starts off this chapter, and again, this is an arbitrary breaking. And that could contribute some to why we, F.F. Bruce thought this would have, the, the book could have ended at chapter 4, although I'm certain he was cognizant of the fact that the Bible was given its chapters and verses long after it was written. But nevertheless, he starts off this chapter, if you'll allow me that statement, with a statement that demonstrates that he is incredulous that such a thing could happen. The Corinthians were allowing a kind of immorality that even the pagans looked down on. They had apparently, in their mistaken and ill-gotten wisdom of the world, they were puffed up thinking that their tolerance was remarkable and good. Paul spends this entire chapter dealing with that kind of a wrong idea. He says that even though I'm not there, I have already judged this as evil, and your glorying is bad. Don't you know that allowing this kind of thing will spread wickedness among the body? Apparently, on the other hand, though, they were going to another extreme when it came to fornication in that they were evidently not even going to associate with unbelievers who were immoral in this way. How do you preach the gospel to them? 
Well, we can't associate with sinners. Okay, that's going to really limit your outreach to the, of the Holy Spirit to the world. Not that the Holy Spirit's constrained, but that's, he's chosen to work through people. So they were evidently not even going to associate unbelievers in this immoral, that were immoral in this way. Legalism often causes the pendulum to swing widely both ways. The Corinthians would accommodate something that was grossly immoral within the church while running from something that was also immoral outside of the church but with no basis in balance. The person in the body who was living with his father's wife was okay. That's Christian tolerance. But outside the church, someone who, uh, who was outside the church who didn't claim to be a Christian, they were living in fornication, was anathema. And they would run from it. Paul gives them the answer in the end of this. Don't judge those outside the church in this way. Judge those inside. Let God judge the unbelievers. Get rid of the sinner from among yourselves. So that's what this chapter in a, in a nutshell is about. So we'll start it with just reading verse 1. Does any of you... That's verse chapter 6. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that if someone has his father's wife. An enormity of this kind in that day, as was well known, was called by Cicero, Skelis Incredible Edinotidum, an incredible and unheard of wickedness that one should have, should cohabit with, should marry his father's wife, his stepmother, and that during his father's life. There were certainly those in the congregation who were Jewish and who would have known of the Old Testament interdiction against a man taking his father's wife, his stepmother. It was a blood guiltiness, and amongst the people of, and amongst the Israelites, it brought death. Leviticus 18.8, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. In Leviticus 20.11, if there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them surely shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. How Paul deals with this is so instructive for us in this day and age, especially with what's going on outside the church and inside the church. So it's a the word pornea is a general term for immorality which is a broad word that covers pretty much all kinds of sexual deviancy. All of it. From this word, is in English, we get the word pornography and pornographic. All of pornographic. All of chapter 5 deals with sexual immorality of some sort. Interestingly enough, Paul deals with the bystanders. First, and most importantly, the so-called believers who were committing, the so-called believers who were committing the sins are dealt with indirectly. But Paul's direct concern was the rest of the church who did nothing about the immorality in their midst. They welcomed it. Well, I can't say they welcomed it. They just turned a blind eye to it. Let's face it. It's easier to turn your eye from it than to deal with the difficult things in life. It's easier to do that than to confront them. And it's easier to ignore them than to spend the time in prayer and preparation that is necessary to firmly but humbly deal with the wickedness in our midst. In 2007, in Wales, um, a man married his mother-in-law. And it caused quite a storm in their local community and in their family, but they did it anyway. They even had to wait for a court to declare that they could do it. At one point, the man was arrested and put in jail for violating the millennia-old ban of marrying a relative like that. Truly, immorality has no end date. Paul does not even address the woman. 
Many think that that's probably because she was not a, a Christian, not a believer. And the man, the man was. Further, the Greek word translated has, a man has his father's wife, when used in the Greek or in sexual and marital terms, refers to a long-standing relationship. This was not a one-night stand. In the word pornea, sexual immorality in the Greek world simply meant prostitution in the sense of going to the prostitutes and paying for sexual pleasure. The Greeks were ambivalent on that matter, depending on whether one went openly or to the brothels or was openly to the brothels or was more discreet and went with a lover. But the word had been picked up in Hellenistic Judaism, always pejoratively, always negatively, to cover all extramarital sins, all extramarital sexual sins and aberrations, including homosexuality. It could also refer to any of these sins specifically, as it does here. In the New Testament, the word is thus used to refer to that particular blight on Greco-Roman culture, which was almost universally countenanced except among the Stoics. That is why pornea appears so often as the first item in the New Testament vice list. Not because Christians were sexually hung up, nor because they considered this the primary sin, the scarlet letter, as it were. It is the result of its prevalence in the culture. And the difficulty the early church experienced with its Gentile converts breaking with their formal ways, former ways, which they did not consider immoral. Now, the living with his mother's, his father's wife, everyone, it was universally condemned as immoral. But other sins, other sexual deviancy wasn't considered immoral. They didn't even look down on it. And this was what was brought into the church. And this was what the Holy Spirit had to change. The fact was, though, that this particular sin, this one that Paul is talking about here, living with your father's wife, was looked down upon by everyone. Greeks, Romans, and other pagans, and all the early churches concluded and declared that it was particularly evil. Indeed, if Paul were still living under Mosaic law, he would have required both the man and the woman to be put to death. As we will see, he advocated a different penalty in verse 5, when we get to verse 5. Any comments about verse 1? What a start. It is actually reported that there is pornea among you and pornea of such a kind as doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. And here's what Paul, here's his first, again, he's not shaming them, but here's his warning to them. Here's his, his encouragement, or if you could look at it like that. You have become arrogant. There's that word again. They get that word more than once. And have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. It's at least as troubling, if not more troubling, Paul, was the fact that the Corinthians weren't upset about this. They didn't mourn it and deal with it as they should have. It may have been from some sort of misunderstanding of Christian liberty. They may have looked at it as though they were tolerating this evil in Christian love. Is that happening today? All over the place. And it's not only... Not only should that, those churches be mourning, but they should be dealing with it. Not just so that they clean the church, but so that they give the Holy Spirit an effectual method of working on the souls of those folks so that they might turn to Christ or turn back to Christ in some cases. It is not loving to let someone live in their sin and ignore it, thinking that you're, you're tolerating, your toleration is good for them. It's not good for them. It's not good for the church. They may have looked at it as though they were tolerating a Christian love. There would have been no love involved in reality because if they truly loved the two people involved, they would have given them the truth 
and showed them that their immorality was evidence that they were possibly not saved or that they were running from God. And they were in danger or could have been in danger of hell. Their arrogance, the Corinthians' arrogance, blinded them to the truth. Maybe they even thought, some thought this, that because they were followers of one of the greats, Apollos or Peter, that would protect them, would make them secure because of who they knew. I mean, I say this, I read this, and I go, nobody thinks that way. Yeah. Yeah, people do think that way. They think that because I know somebody, I'm safe. Because I have someone as a friend, I'm safe. I can trust them. They'll take care of it, whatever it is. And then they go on living their life. <laughs> All of the problems dealt with in chapters 1 through 4 primarily resulted because of pride, ego, and the general attitude of superiority. That those problems resulted in sexual immorality should not be a surprise. Undealt with sin leads to more sin and often sin of a different kind, such as what we see happened here. This, sadly, is, is more often than not the result of following feelings and emotions rather than the clear direction of Scripture. Wish I could say I'd never done that. When we refuse to confront known sin, we are actually hating that person. And we are putting our own comfort ahead of their well-being. Ahead of their salvation. Ahead of their repentance. Ahead of their restoration. If we truly love them, we would prayerfully, humbly, but firmly help them see that what they are doing is an affront to God and an endangerment to their souls, whether saved or not. But because confrontation is difficult, we will often submerge our responsibility under the false pretense of tolerance. Tolerating a fire in your neighbor's home because it's keeping some vagrants in the yard warm is a terrible thing to do. Well, they're, they're worse than marshmallows. It's keeping them, they don't have to sleep on the bench, but your neighbor's house is on fire. Whereas in chapters 1 through 4, Paul was dealing with the wrong philosophies undergirding the Corinthians' thought. Now he's dealing with an actual moral deficiency, a result of their wrong theological worldview. Again, wrong theology results in bad behavior. One commentator put it this way. He said, what is at stake is not simply a low view of sin. Rather, it is the church itself. Will it follow Paul's gospel with its ethical implications? Or will it continue in its present spirituality? One that tolerates such sin and thereby destroys God's temple in Corinth. Verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Thus, Paul uses this concrete example both to assert his authority and to speak to the larger issue of sexual immorality. And Paul's counsel to them, consistent with the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, remove from your midst. In Matthew chapter 18. Though it may sound harsh, and I couldn't come up with a good metaphor, and as I read this one this morning, it began to sound worse, but I'll, since it's in my notes, I'll read it. Though it may sound harsh, just as you would pluck an errant fly out of your pancake batter, you must remove the unrepentant sinner from your midst. Why didn't someone in Corinth go to this man and lovingly confront him for doing something so unspeakable? He had to have friends. He had to have people who loved him, who cared about him, who really did care about him. If he was then rebuffed, why didn't he take two or three brothers from the church and approach him again, pleading with them to stop this evil, begging them with tears if necessary? And then, should he still refuse to repent, 
Why did they not remove him from their congregation? And this was done with an eye towards restoration. Paul will explain that in a few verses hence. But we have the teaching. And it was the Lord, this is that uh, information about what was at stake. We have the Lord's teaching, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which Paul would have certainly brought to the Corinthian church because he would have declared to them, as he said elsewhere, the whole, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Well, the counsel of God in words was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as well as the Old Testament. Matthew 18, 15-17, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. By the way, that's really important. Hey, so-and-so. Everybody knows you're doing this, don't we? (laughs) If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Every fact, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector removed from from the fellowship. The Lord Jesus went through a whole series of steps. It took time to do this. It took effort. It took involvement. It took relationship. And we shirk our, we, we shrink away from the difficult parts of relationship often. Much the same way that we are seeing the twisted morality today, the pagan religions did not value sexual purity at all. This would have been the battle the gospel had to fight in the hearts of the Corinthian believers. Get this. One of the more common sayings of the day gives us insight into the wicked mindset of the time. And, and there's nothing new under the sun. Here's what the Greek said. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. The gospel is up to this, however. Praise be to God that the gospel is able to set us free. The Corinthians as well from this kind of wickedness. Romans 7, remember what Paul said in chapter, 20, in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but with my other, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. But thanks be to God that the Lord Jesus Christ is up to this. Although Paul earlier cautioned the Corinthians not to judge the hearts of fellow believers regarding... Yeah, there was a lot of information here, so it got small. <laughs> I could have done it in two pages. That occurred to me like three days later. Anyway. We're going to stop there. It's six, 16 minutes after. That's going to be... You can uh, meditate on what the word judge means as we look at uh, next week. For I and my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. A couple of things I want you to be thinking about. It's proper to properly, humbly, lovingly, agonizingly judge sin. But it's important that you have good information. Remember what the Lord Jesus said. Go to the person. Then go to him with, then go to him with the church. I would guess, perchance, that Paul had had someone do that that someone had done that. And when they relayed this information to him, he knew he had solid information. It is so important when you're dealing with something of this magnitude to only proceed on solid, good information. And I would advocate that that information is best acquired first hand.
So we'll look at verse 3 next week. Any comments before we close on verse 2 about their arrogance that they should have mourned? And, and I, that's what should characterize us when we see sin in the church. Not, well, I'm not doing that. Or not, well, it's not as bad as you think. We should mourn. We should have broken hearts. We should be saddened. Because that's what it does to the Lord. He is not grateful. The Lord is not happy when His children turn from Him. I can't, you know, I'm anthropomorphizing it now and I, I don't want to go very far, but it has to be discouraging. You can't discourage the Almighty, but you get my drift here. So, as you think about this next week, for I am my part, though, Paul says, I've judged him already. And, uh, just as if I was there. Paul could do that. The Holy Spirit could do that. I would advocate that we have a very high responsibility in situations like this, and we can get that from the full counsel of Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that um, You're not afraid to confront the wickedness in our hearts, because if You hadn't done that, You would have never turned our hearts to, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You would have never given the grace to give us life, life eternal. But You did, and we are so grateful. And as Spurgeon said, when others are telling everyone about it, we will be sitting at your feet wondering, why did you save even us? Thank you that you did, Lord. Help us to be instruments in the salvation of others. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.